It's a bit like if a child falls off its bike in a park. The dad would run over and pick the child up, rescue the child, but then he'd say, "Okay, you've got to get back on your bike." Now let's see. You did five yards. Let's see if you can do ten. Here's a test. I'm going to challenge you. Just like that. That's what God's doing. He's leaving these nations here to test them, to challenge them, to get them to grow up, to stop being generation flaky. Welcome to the God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Get over yourself. That's the name of our series. The study is called Keep the Covenant. This is part two of a study that's pulled from Judges chapter two. Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Bustine. Josh, last time we looked at the problem of generational belief systems, and today we're heading into the solution, and it sounds like we can paraphrase our opening clip as tests. Help us grow up. Yeah, I think well, I think that's right. That's the that's the point of test. Uh, produces perseverance and character and hope. Uh, it's intended to uh, shore up our faith and produce that kind of maturity that we're looking for if we receive it right. And so, absolutely. And uh, if you're going through a testing time, uh, realize that it has a good purpose behind it, even though that doesn't make it any less difficult. Hmm. Judges chapter 2, keep the covenant. This is part 2 of our study. We'll do a quick review of the first part and then move into the new material for today. Here's Josh. Well, friends, uh, brothers and sisters, if you turn with me to your Bibles, we're looking at uh, the book of Judges, and we're going to pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 3. So chapter 3 and verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning traces for us a pattern which is very familiar to all of us. Someone can uh, grow up as a Christian in a Christian home, and yet when it comes their turn to be an adult and to follow Jesus, it comes their turn to spread their wings, they end up not keeping to the faith of their fathers, of their forefathers. It's a very familiar pattern. It happens. And so we have here described over and over again this common change from what the fathers believed and did to what the children believed and did. But it's not just uh, individuals here, but a whole shift of society as well. And that can happen sometimes too. And so what we're going to look at in this passage is uh, to see what it is is the real problem behind this shift from one generation to the other, and then what it teaches us is the true solution. So let's, let's get on with it. First, the problem, formal, not personal faith. The problem, formal, not personal faith. 
They were told, forsook the Lord and follow the gods, the peoples around them. Now, what was actually going on? Probably they carried on also worshipping Yahweh. We can know that as a pattern that happened uh, in the rest of the prophets when they're talking about it. They carried on also worshipping Yahweh, but they came polytheistic, as we would say. They were also worshipping the other gods. They, they wanted a kind of safety net, a security blanket in some kind of divine way. Yahweh, but also Baal, to cover their bases, right? So that's the problem. And once we begin to analyze the problem, we can see how it moves swiftly towards the solution. And that's the second thing we're going to look at. And we're going to see what it says to us about that solution, uh, particularly in the narrative more briefly. So first, we have the problem. And now, uh, finally, second, the solution. Now, as you look down the passage again, you'll see there are two kinds of solutions here. The first is verse 16. And it describes the role of the judges that he sends. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. That's the first kind of solution, the judges. Of course, that's why the book is called Judges. There were 12 uh, who were sent to rescue uh, God's people in this book. In the middle section of the book, they'll be described as we go through it. In English, of course, a judge is someone who sits in a court and uh, delivers judgments on cases that are brought to him. But here, these biblical judges, while they did some of that, we'll find actually their role, their essential role, was entirely different from what we might expect. What does it say? The Lord raised up judges who, not judged them, but who saved them out of the hand of these raiders. So God sent the judges to save his people. So we could as well call the 12 judges in this book the 12 saviors with perhaps more accuracy. The other solution that God provides, in addition to the judges or the saviors, is that you'll find at the end of chapter 2, you'll scan down there, and the beginning of chapter 3. And so verse 21 and verse 22 God says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Well, why is he doing this? Is he just being vindictive, trying to give them a really nasty time? You, you've been nasty to me. I'm going to be nasty to you. I can get my vengeance, not at all. I will, why is he doing it? I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep to the way of the Lord and their forefathers. You'll see the same thing in chapter 3, verse 2. He did this only to teach warfare, to teach his people, and we'll think what that means in a moment. Or verse 4 of chapter 3, they were left to test the Israelites. So these are the two solutions. God sends judges or saviors to rescue his people, and he leaves the nations to test his people and to teach them. Uh, what's this like? It's a bit like uh, if a child falls off its bike in a park, the dad would run over and pick the child up and dust it down. He would rescue the child. Wouldn't he? But then he say, okay, you've got to get back on your bike, right? Now, let's see. You did five yards. Let's see if you can do ten, okay? Here's a test. I'm going to challenge you. Fifteen by tomorrow, okay? I'm here. Falls off. Picks up. Now, try again, right? It's a test. It's a challenge. It's just like that. That's what God's doing. He's leaving these nations here to test them, to challenge them, to get them to grow up and stop being generation flaky, you know? All right? Or perhaps you feel uh, like you have fallen off your bike. It may be that rescue is right around the corner. So your heavenly father comes and dusts you down and puts you back on. God still does that kind of stuff even today, you know. He's real. He sends angels of mercy in the form of all sorts of brothers and sisters and godly men and women. He raises up 
friends to care for us. He has the church to be a family for us. He has preachers to feed us. You know, many a Christian has found that when they are at the wit's end, right at the darkest point of, uh, of the night, God suddenly steps in and provides a wonderful rescue through some judge sent to save us. So if you are feeling stuck, or like you've fallen off your bike, as it were, don't despair. Don't think, oh, God isn't real anymore. You know, I'm going to give up. I've fallen off my bike. I'm never going to get on again. You know? Don't despair. In a few days, you'll be telling your friends, wow, God stepped in. He did the most amazing thing. He rescued me. He put me right back on again. I'm fine now. And then when that happens, remember. So the next time you fall off, you're not sending panicky emails to me about how horrible you feel, right? Because you can see the pattern, not only of you falling down, but of God stepping in and putting you back on again. You can trust him. He's going to do it again because he is faithful. Josh has more input into stabilizing our flaky generations in just a moment. But first, a quick welcome to you if you're just joining us here at God-Centered Life. We're glad you're here. We're working our way through various books of the Bible and exploring what God has to say to us. Those studies are available, the ones that are already completed on our website. We'll tell you how to find those in just a few minutes. Meantime, let's get back into our study in Judges. Here's Josh. But perhaps you're not so much, you know, falling off your bike or stuck. Uh, you're not so much like that as, as simply sinning. We all do, you know. Even pastors, right? Everyone sins this side of glory. You come up to me after church and say, I haven't sinned for ten years. I might diagnose your sin as pride. <laughs> right? Christians are not people who think they are better than other people. They are people who know that they are bad and have asked a savior to rescue them. Remember that. Don't let anyone uh, take that realization away from you. Now, of course, it's true that moral standards need to be kept. You do need to live up to what God has called you to in the law. But the longer you are a Christian, here's what's going to happen. The longer you are a Christian, the more you will realize you are a sinner. Why is that? Because the more you get to know how holy God is, and the more you realize you're not like that at all. That one sign of spiritual maturity is brokenness before the Lord. Now what about sin? Well, God has a remedy for Christians who sin, and it is called discipline. Hebrews 12, verse 7, and following, puts it like this. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And this, of course, is the testing that they experience, and that God still does uh, discipline us. Like a father 
disciplines his children. God disciplines us tenderly with omniscient wisdom, unlike our human fathers, who, who are sinners too and mess up, right? But Heavenly Father, with omniscient wisdom, using even common hardship, endure hardship is discipline, using even common hardship as uh, his means of providing a test for us to overcome and to learn from, that we might get the great good of growing in maturity and holiness. Now it can be tough, the Bible tells us. Yeah, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but afterwards it produces something good. Any kind of training can be tough, can't it? Pushing yourself to do one more set of weights, that can hurt. But you're going to get stronger that way or, or, or try and get your personal best in a time trial or something like that. It can be tough. But you're not going to get there unless you do it. You need to be trained. We get this wonderful harvest of righteousness and peace. So, do not sin. Even if you are a Christian and therefore know that you're saved. Now, there is always forgiveness for sins if you're a real Christian and you really ask for it. As long as we are genuinely repentant, that is true. But sin, though forgiven, still has consequences in this life. And God disciplines us through those consequences. The nations, uh, it puts it here, that are not driven out and therefore stay to be thorns in our side. It's a metaphor for the things that we experience, the consequences of our own personal sins. So do not sin. God still will forgive you if you ask him, and he'll move you on, but you'll have to go over that hardship, that challenge, that consequence. Learn from your mistakes, and so become more righteous and receive the peace for those who submit to the Father of their spirits. Well, there we have it, the problem. A generation that grew up who did not know the Lord, nor what the Lord had done, formal, not personal faith. The solution God sent saviors to rescue his people from the mess that they got themselves in and the testing circumstances that he provided in order to train his people so they would grow in holiness in the future. But verse 6 of chapter 3, it didn't work. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The cycle continued unbroken. There's a downward spiral. Verse 19 of chapter 2. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways, and so the spiral revolved like a cycle, but downwards. The judges were saviors, but they were not the Savior. You see, that's the great secret for understanding the Old Testament. There's a history to God's salvation plan. Each of these judges is intended to lead us to look to another Savior. And so as Christians, we are not to look to our mentor or any human figure ultimately is our savior. No, we're to look to Christ. As helpful as they can be, we must not stay there. We must go through their personality to encounter personally Jesus. And as Christians, we have the immeasurable privilege of not just having had saviors sent to us, but having had 
the Savior sense, the the sense. The Bible puts it like this. This grace was given to us before the beginning of time. So it's still by grace in the Old Testament. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought light and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Or it puts it like this. We live on the other side of the cross of resurrection and the wonderful certain hope of, and I quote, our citizenship in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. So Jesus has come, and he's coming back, and we live in this stage of God's salvation plan. It's a wonderful, wonderful privilege. I'm not here to say to you, there's a judge out there. He's going to save us for a few years. I'm here to say to you, Jesus has come, and he has sent his Holy Spirit so that you might have soft hearts to him, that you might know him in your own soul, that you might know him and know what he has done. And it would change your life and it would break that cycle. But perhaps you're still not sure you want it. You don't want that old-time religion. You come to church, but you find it old-fashioned and you wonder, what's wrong with the other gods? You are deeply attracted to the idea that all religions lead to God, like all roads lead to Rome. And you find it, frankly, morally reprehensible to say that God is the only way to God. How arrogant. And even looking at a passage like this, which seems to to glory in religious war against indigenous peoples by an invading terrorist army, is itself practically, on its own, offensive. And certainly not encouraging. And that's not to mention how troubling you find it that we should take seriously a book and spend a long time talking about it, which was written so long ago. And with so many uncertainties as to its historical accuracy. I have some sympathy with you. And I'm not alone. William uh, Lobdell, in a piece recently written in the LA Times, recounts how someone who used to be born-again Christian he gradually fell away from his faith. For him, it was the religious hypocrisy of various institutional forms of Christianity, most broadly speaking. It's a fascinating article in the LA Times by this guy, Lobdell. He went into journalism to write on religion with a sense of mission from God, but came out the other side deeply disturbed by the moral debauchery covered up by the Roman Catholic Church. His words, his, 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 his say. The obscene, selfish wealth of the prosperity gospel preachers that he unearthed with their planes, BMWs, everything else. The shunning of those who want to leave the church by the Mormons, he he writes, and, and much else besides. And again, I have sympathy. You don't have to tell a pastor that churches can be far from perfect. In fact, you don't need to tell anyone who reads the Bible that God's people sometimes, you know, stuff up, Right? I have questions too. I wrestle with things at times. But I wrestle in the end with God himself. And I think that makes the difference. Once you encounter his face and you begin to think from that proposition, you will find that there are answers to those ticklish intellectual questions. There are satisfying solutions to the questions of the historical reliability of the Bible. There are scholars who keep their intellectual integrity without sacrificing the vitality of their faith. 
There are churches who live up to Jesus' standard as being a light on the hill. And there are Christians, many, many, many of them, who are indeed the salt of the earth. Who are out in Africa fighting the AIDS tragedy. Who are out there rescuing young girls off the streets who have been sold into the sexual slavery trade in Eastern Europe and the Far East and many other places too. Now, yes, indeed. This passage is telling us that we cannot have this passed onto us by inheritance. You need to know the Lord yourself and reflect and understand on his great work of redemption in Egypt and ultimately in Christ at the cross. He suffered there, God himself in in Christ, God himself in Jesus, taking not just the sufferings of the world upon himself, but the sin that is the cause of which suffering is the diagnostic evidence. And so, being the saviour, So I say to you, do not be satisfied with your forefather's faith. Make it your own. Because if you don't, pretty soon you won't have faith at all. That's Josh Moody, and this is the God-Centered Life. (laughs) i got to tell you, it's like a bit of a baseball bat to the midsection when you say the problem, a generation that did not know the Lord. The solution? God sent saviors to rescue his people. And then, quote, but of course, it didn't work. <laughs> now, Josh, you don't actually say this, but it seems to be implied that it, it wasn't supposed to work. Yeah, all the savior figures in the Old Testament are echoes, uh, types, to use the theological term, signs to point us to the savior. And his salvation does work. Yes, that's right. They're intended to point us somewhere. We read these temporary fixes. Um, It's not that they didn't do anything. They didn't bring about any rescue. But what we really need is to put our faith in the Messiah, the Savior, and uh, trust him. And then we will indeed be saved. Now, we see these passionate judges that appear. They're sent by God. They're they're fully believing Mm -hmm. this is going to work. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So is this the benefit of a New Testament perspective to know that God is using them in the way he chooses, even though they believe they are going to be effectual? God knows they're not going to be. Well, they are effectual to some extent, but the people rebel uh, and don't and don't uh, don't stay with the program, if you like. Mm. And that's, of course, the story of the whole Old Testament. So, yes, to some extent, it is a, the benefit of looking at things through the New Testament eyes. But I think if you were a thoughtful, pious, godly Jewish member of the covenant, you must have asked yourself the same sort of questions. Are my sins really going to be taken away by this lamb who Hmm. sacrificed for me? These saviors, why is it so temporary? This King David, he's a great king, but he's done some things that are pretty terrible. Why have we gone into exile? Why? So there are all these questions in the Old Testament, and they can only really be answered with the light of the new, but the questions are in the Old Testament. And like you say, uh, the Savior's small case, S, 
all, as does the entire Old Testament, point to the Savior, uppercase S. Right. Yes. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate that. Part two of this study just wrapped up. Part one available on our website, as are other studies. We'd love for you to take advantage of the resources there as we continue to make our way through Old Testament, New Testament. All of God's Word is valuable to us, and uh, we love sharing it with you. Thanks to those who have made this possible. We are listener-supported, so a huge tip of the cap to those who are supporting and partnering with us. Next time we get together, making our way through Judges, and this time it's Jabba the Hutt. Ehud was a left-handed man, that detail's significant, who got called to be a judge and then sent with tribute to an extraordinary obese, wicked ruler named Eglon, a sort of Jabba the Hutt, if you will. We're going to continue our look at the book of Judges when we get together next time. Devotional resources for you at GodCenteredLife.org. And this is your invitation to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody.